0: I literally walked out of my, um, where I'm staying, this backpacker hotel, and then I'm looking, um, just doing some birding while waiting for Jaden to show up, um, and I run into this gentleman who is cycling and birding, and I just had to talk to him. You are
1: listening to Urban
2: Hey, podcast listeners, this is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. It's just in this episode, at least doing the intro because you're going to hear Tony in a little bit. Before we get to Tony's adventures in Australia, let's take care of the routine reminders first. If you like the podcast, please rate us in your podcasting platform of choice. Please also let your friends know about it through whatever means possible, whether that's actual like person-to-person conversation, passing them notes, Snapchat. Facebook, Twitter, you name it. Let them know about the podcast so they can listen to it also. Please feel free to get in touch with us. You can send us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at Herb cast You can find us on Facebook pretty easily. Please let us know what you think about the show. Let us know any ideas for stories that you think we should do. We absolutely love it when we get ideas and content from people who listen to the podcast. So please, please get in touch. Uh, So without much further ado, we're going to start off with Tony talking to an imperial pigeon researcher he just happened to run into, because that's what happens when you're Tony and you're walking around a city, you run into wildlife researchers. All right, so
0: I'm here in Cairns, I literally walked out of my, um, where I'm staying, this backpacker hotel, and then I'm looking, um, just doing some birding while waiting for Jaden to show up. Um, and I run into this gentleman who is cycling and birding, and I just had to talk to him. Turns out he's doing a Torresian imperial pigeon survey, nesting survey. So why don't you uh, tell us who you are, what you're doing, and, how, and uh, what the importance of the study is.
3: Yes, well, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been doing this survey, and it's part of a 50-year-old survey now, which was started as a pigeon count when these Theresian imperial pigeons were hunted to the brink of extinction by sports uh, shooters in the uh, 1950s. Anyway, this uh, pigeon count has persisted ever since and still going today and it uh, counts the birds as they go to roost on the offshore islands and, you know, numbers like 30,000 appear on the, on the data sheets and things like that. But when Cyclone Yarsi wiped out all the vegetation on the offshore islands, that number plummeted to 5,000 in the first count after Cyclone Yarsi. And coincidentally, uh, they turned up in Cairns City nesting. Prior to Cyclone Yasi, 10 or a dozen nests would be the most you'd ever find in Cairns City. Post-Cyclone Yarsi, I was getting between three and 400 nests a year. Last season I got 712 nests. And this is with just cycling around, cursory uh, recording, not not exhaustive searching, and um, just recording the nests, GPS point, species of tree they nest in, um, a bit of other relative data. And I'll just keep an eye on whatever nests I can because we're trying to work out what the uh, success rate of this move onshore is, uh, what sort of predation they're experiencing, uh, their persistence, will they persist or will they move back to the islands now that the vegetation has come back to the islands. And it would seem that they, they like it in the city, so they're still here. And one, th- one thought is that uh, the reason they nest on the offshore islands is that the ocean gives them a moat of protection Perhaps the urban sprawl gives them a similar mode of protection. But I have noticed a build-up in uh, raptors in, in Kansas. since this yeah. has happened. But anyway, all my data goes into the big data bank that's being run by an adjunct professor at the James Cook University now, uh, Dr Julia Hazel, and she has all the data, that 50-year data, in the bank as well. So this just provides us with an opportunity... To look at the nesting without having to go and live on one of the offshore islands for six months of the year. So it's just an opportunity that's pre- presented itself, and I'm, I use it as as my exercise.
0: I gotta say this is I've, you know I love you know I love urban wildlife. Um, I travel all I travel all over the world. Um, almost fifty about forty eight countries I've been to, and I gotta say Cairns. I think it's got to be the greatest city I've ever visited for urban wildlife
3: Yes yes. Much to the annoyance of the local council I can tell you
0: (laughs) Wow, thank you so much That was so fortuitous
2: Next up, Tony is going to be talking to another researcher (laughs) he ran into this time in Sydney talking about a wide variety of Sydney wildlife
0: (laughs) Those are all all urban wildlife (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, I found you yesterday um, because I had seen a wing-flagged white ibis, Australian white ibis, at um, walking around the shops at Darling Harbour, mm-hmm. and I was like, someone has to be studying um, urban Australian white ibis. Um, if there's wing flags on it and then I don't know if that was actually one of your birds because when I looked when I started me and my friends started googling that and, and um, it look, I, I couldn't find anything about you with wing flags but I found about you in, in bands so I don't know do you know who 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 did that bird is that one of yours it's
1: one of mine what, yeah 72 72 yellow Are you yep. familiar with so what's 72
0: What's it, so tell me about well actually first let's introduce introduce yourself
1: your title, what you do, and then we'll we'll start with the ibises. Okay. Uh, Dr. John Martin, I'm a wildlife ecologist. I'm a research scientist here in the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Uh, I spend a bit of time working with a range of urban fauna with a bit of an emphasis on human-wildlife conflict. Uh, so I'm interested in those species that people tend to think are a bit of a nuisance. So you were exactly the person that, that I needed to find when I was here in the in Sydney it
0: was a fluke <laughs> but here we are having a coffee it was also a, and it was one of your
1: birds that brought me to you yeah they are messengers <laughs> yeah. so in the bigger picture the Australian white ibis uh, is, a, is a species that has changed its behaviour it, it, you know, if we went back 30 years ago and you saw an Australian white ibis in the Sydney like, CBD area where you saw one yesterday that would have been really rare and if you're a birdo, you'd have rung up your mates and gone, come down, check out this amazing bird. This is a, it's a rare sighting, you know, you'd get the twitches coming in. But what's happened over that 30-year period is we've gone from having a few hundred Australian white Ibis in urban Sydney to having over 9,000 Australian white Ibis in urban Sydney. and. They have adapted to nest in habitat like palm trees which yes nest yesterday, yeah yep they wouldn't traditionally have ever nested in palm trees they traditionally nest in in wetlands where they crush down the emergent vegetation and they build those floating rafts nests wow uh,
0: that's, a, that's a huge difference
1: yeah well a- and then you know the bins and scavenging for people and foraging in landfills so you know've they've, they've had a real change and so what's driven that change is in their traditional habitats, which is the Murray-Darling Basin, it's a it's a huge area, like a million square kilometres, it's our agricultural food bowl in Australia. And so we've dammed the rivers, we've extracted water for agriculture and for towns, and we've had really reduced environmental flows. So those wetlands don't have the floods that they used to. And so I actually say to people they're a messenger species because they're the one species that in the urban environment we see regularly that is actually waving the flag saying hey I'm here because you stuffed up the habitat (laughs) where the other species we don't see them in that they haven't shifted to change their behaviour and their their habitat that's amazing
0: yeah there's always there's always a human element to whenever you see urban wildlife and something becomes a nuisance species and people are like you know hating on them like Canada geese back in Yep you're like, well, if you look at the story, it's, people are at the fault and in the case of Canada geese, is because you're allowed to use live decoys um, up until 30s, and then they outlaw the practice, so they just let the geese go, that they had as live decoys, and geese don't, um, I mean, they're entrained to the daylight, and they get restless, but they don't know where to migrate, that's taught. So, they didn't just suddenly be like, oh, we're free, we're going to fly back up to Quebec, yep. right? So they just stayed. And then also, um, they were intentionally released um, in places that didn't have a migratory population. So this nuisance bird um, has a you know, it's human origin, so it's just like the ibis. And, and, and in this case, not like they are
1: released, but they were, they, well, they had a shift. Actually, there is a funny backstory, which is, if you go back into the, the 60s, uh, there was a wildlife sanctuary in Victoria called Hillsville Sanctuary, and they got some chicks out of a nest in the wild, brought them to the sanctuary... And then they, you know, they survived, which was fine. They reproduced. It was a success story, one of the, the early captive breedings of native Australian birds in captivity. And then they kept breeding, and to the point where they decided, There's, we've got too many of them in the sanctuary. We need to wow. do something about it. And so they did things like destroying the eggs to stop them having more chicks. But then eventually they decided, we'll give some of them to other wildlife sanctuaries. And so they gave some to Taronga Zoo here in Sydney in 1973. So Tidbinbilla Sanctuary in Canberra and Corumbin Sanctuary on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Anyway, in Taronga, there was 14 pairs released as a liberty flock. They didn't put them in a cage, they just released them in the zoo. Wow! And arguably, that seeded this urban population. So it's not that they all... Uh, mated and, and we have 9,000 from 14 pairs Right. it's that what this bird did do is they did disperse, they did move mm-hmm. but they also brought other birds back so that knowledge transfer of hey, there's good habitat here Wow. now it, a lot of this is implied, the, the right. knowledge transfer but you know we know that they didn't breed from 14 pairs to 9,000 birds yeah. because we do have data showing them moving and hence the wing tag shows them moving in across larger geographic Distances.
0: So, for instance, um,
1: Yellow 72, yep. right? Um, male or female? It's a female, yeah. so it's shorter bill, slightly smaller bird. You get the larger males with a longer bill. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, where was she first tagged and, and, and where she moved? Yeah, so. Uh, that yellow tag indicates the bird was tagged in the city, which is here at the Botanic Garden just up the road at Hyde Park. So literally uh, I'd go out and catch these birds while people are having their lunch. Uh, business people have come down from the skyscrapers, they're sitting on the lawn having a nice lunch in the sunshine and I would, um, the ibis are mixing around in between these people to scavenge some food. And I'd go and actually catch some birds in front of these people, which was quite funny because a lot of the people get quite surprised when suddenly a bird gets caught and someone's yeah. standing there holding this bird you have a hand Uh yeah. Actually, foot noose them. Oh. Okay. So, uh, yeah, they're, um, it can be quite the show. <laughs> it's, 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 anyway, it's a very effective method because they're used to coming up to people to get food. Right. Um, and so that bird was wing tagged actually here in the Botanic Garden uh, three years ago. And what we've been doing with those birds is actually more recently tagging uh, juvenile birds to look at natal philopatric. So do those birds disperse long distances or do they actually hang around in the habitat where they were born? And so we see that a large proportion of those birds aren't moving. They've got the good life. So rather than doing what they traditionally did, so you go back to these inland wetlands, it was a, it was a boom-bust cycle of flooding and then the flood would disappear, so the birds would have to disperse. And there's data showing that juvenile birds would disperse even up to Papua New Guinea, so a couple of thousand kilometers away. Uh, But what we see now is that a lot of these juvenile birds don't disperse, and there are some birds that we've been monitoring over the last 10 years that we see regularly in our surveys, and we've gone and put GPS transmitters on them, and we're getting multiple fixes a day, and it shows that they literally, over a multiple month period, don't move more than two kilometers it's as, it's as if they're not flying Wow. they can fly but they just get all their resources by just walking around between the parks they have a short flight over from over a road to another park and they're just bouncing around my last visit
0: to florida um i had better birding in the cities in than the in the everglades yeah really yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sewer treatment plant at palm beach um had better uh
1: uh had huge um Wading bird colonies that I can just, you can just walk through boardwalks around. Sewage treatment plants are a gold mine in two senses. So, but yes, the birds are definitely uh, the one that we're interested in.
0: So, uh, man, I could just so much. Like, your little blurb on your um, on the Botanic Garden page was like, for, I could have done s- probably six interviews with you out of that. Like, because you also study powerful mm-hmm. owls, mm-hmm. flying foxes,
1: mm-hmm. red foxes. Yep. And what else? Uh, self crested cockatoos, yellow tail black cockatoos, uh, do some eastern grey kangaroos, swamp wallabies.
0: <laughs> like, wow! Like, I, I don't even know where to where to begin with all that. Um, is there any of those? I mean, anybody listening to this would find that interesting that all those are. Uh, well, the foxes are pretty ubiquitous in urban areas now, mm-hmm. but they're not native here, so that's interesting in itself. But then the other those other animals, um, you know. Are, for instance, Sulphur Crested Cockatoo, aren't they I heard that they're not actually native to Sydney,
1: is that true? That they were brought in? So when you go way back to the early records, they weren't seen commonly in the area where we are right now, but they were seen that wasn't Ibis. Yeah, there's an behind right behind us. <laughs> so we're at the cafe at the garden. Uh, but the, the Sulphur Crested Cockatoos were did occur in this area. So they they actually occurred in the large the greater Sydney region, so western Sydney, so 40 Ks from here, uh, there's an area called the Cumberland Plain Woodland they would occur in that area so they are definitely native to this area but similar to the Australian White Ibis they've uh, expanded their distribution they've increased their numbers in urban environments one of the the things that's most novel about that species which is similar to the Ibis is the adaptation of scavenging from people Mm. now people don't use that term scavenging because people love this species Right. Uh, some people hate them as well but
0: I mean it's it's a it has the most horrific call of any bird ever. So I can see people have mixed feelings about it. While this bird is extremely charismatic and beautiful, it sounds like a pterodactyl.
1: It does sound like a pterodactyl. I'll pull it up here. But uh, look, so the thing is, they, they, um, they will go and feed from people. So they're happy to even sit on your shoulder, and you know, th- that's not a problem for them. That's part of just what they do. It's very loud yeah. when they're riding right your yeah. ear, sitting on your shoulder.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's the stuff of nightmares. It's almost as bad as... Well, your, your barn owls here aren't as, don't sound as crazy as the ones we have. No, no they just sound like owls.
1: Yeah, um, our barn owls sound like a murderer. Well, you know, there's that whole woman being killed in the forest. Yeah. But it's <laughs> just the barn owls. But they split them, so you're the eastern barn owl and western. And... Mm. There's this big desert in the way. Yeah, <laughs> so it's uh, it's caused some some speciation. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so with the sulphurs, it's really interesting uh, because they're a hollow nesting species, and of course in urban areas we cut down trees. There are a lot yeah. less trees. So uh, the other thing we do is there's a risk of trees failing. Mm. So if there's a, a hollow forming in a tree, it's considered a weakness. So quite commonly, these trees with hollows are right. actually cut down because they're seen as potentially going to fall on a house or on a car or on a person. Um, but their numbers are increasing. And, you know, so we've, we've actually got a, a wing-tagging program for them as well. We're, so we're engaging the community, so a citizen science project, and uh, people can report their sightings of these wing-tagged birds and, you know, we've had over 15,000 recitings by members of the community. It was just blown us away. And because these birds are going onto people's balconies or in their gardens, and the people are hand-feeding them peanuts or, or biscuits and things like this, which they shouldn't necessarily be doing, but, um, you know, people get this interaction with these birds. That being said, you know, if an ibis goes to someone's backyard, they tend to get shooed away. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think they're equally awesome looking, but... I guess it, you know, this thing with a naked head is... not is... <laughs> What are you saying about bald people? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so look, you're right. The, the Australian one, ibis, it stands about 60 to 70 centimetres tall. It's got these long legs uh, that look sort of uh, reptilian. Yeah. You know, they've got s- the scales on them. Um, they've got this bald head, uh, black leathery skin, and this black down-curved bill. Uh, they can have a bill up to 20 centimetres long. So you know they, they will go up to people and try to get them to drop some food or give them some food and and you know I think it, I do find it humorous because we've changed our behaviour. Once upon a time, a bird came up to you, you would have just gone and eaten it. You know, yeah. you'd have hunted that. Uh, nowadays, of course, we, we actually you see people running in fear from a bird that only weighs two kilos. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Um, and Where? so parafly owls let's talk, let's talk about powerful <laughs> owls. man so much to talk to you about but uh so powerful owls your largest owl
1: they are yes yeah, um, so they're nowhere near as big as what you guys get in the yeah, states great horns yeah, yeah great horns Yep. So I'm these it's ones, about the
0: comparable to barred owl, I guess
1: yeah they they get up to 2 kilo, so a bit less than that uh, maybe 1.6 kilos so cool. what's that for you guys so uh, 3 pound like that. yeah, that's a significant
0: you know, it's still pretty big. I mean, it's not. Grey horn not twice as big. It's just you know, mm. one and a half. So, you know. Yeah.
1: No, they're big. Um, so, we, what we see with them in the urban environment, again, they're uh, It's just an odd species. They're actually listed as vulnerable to, to extinction because of loss of habitat. So, cutting down forests for agriculture and for urban development. They're a hollow nesting owl.
0: Yeah. So. yeah. Back to this silver crested. So yep. where? Okay. Where the silver crested and because they're not actually, sulfur in and power are probably fairly similar in size.
1: Uh, well, sulfurs are about 800 to 1,000 uh, grams, so one kilogram. Uh, so they're like twice as big. Yeah, so the power is about twice as big, but the birds standing next to each other. It's not that, it's just the owl's actually a lot more structurally, right. you know, it's twice as wide.
0: But they probably need similar sized cavities, yeah. bigger cavities. They right?
1: compete for cavities, yeah, they do. Um, the owls technically need a larger one, but the sulfurs will use the same right. cavities.
0: And, and so, did you with studying the sulfurs, did you find, where are they nesting? Like, have mm. they, so, they changed
1: to nesting in different things? Yeah, so a colleague of mine who, who I work with on the sulfurs, uh, Dr. Adrian Davis, he's done some work and he's found that the sulfurs are the bullies in the urban environment they're excluding other species like powerful owls and things like the brush tail possum which is a cat sized um, marsupial that uh, actually is omnivorous and will eat eggs and chicks and things like this but they'll actually exclude them out uh, from using hollows which they breed in and they actually um, den in each night but and so there's this nice little triangle between those three species because Powerful owls will eat both sulfur crested and um, the brush-tailed possums. Brush-tailed possums sort of three kilo, yeah. So you know, powerful owls, maybe 1,600, 1,800 grams, is carrying a, a, a mammal twice its size that it's caught in the canopy of a tree. Wow. Yeah. So they've got these massive talons, very impressive. Um, but that being said, sulfur crested cockatoos. Will exclude both of those other species from hollows because they'll work as a team, and they'll they do scream at them. It's not that they bite them and attack them. It's yeah. really just it's a mobbing sort of thing. So then the animal just goes, "All right, I'll get out of here. I'll go."
0: You can seriously probably take sulphur crested cockatoo recordings and put
1: them on like speakers and like riot control vehicles <laughs> and get people to disperse. They do have an amazing call. Yeah, yeah. You get up close to a couple. <laughs> experience the real the, the scream
0: powerful owls have they, have they what are they so they're vulnerable throughout the country but they're, they're doing pretty well in cities
1: well so BirdLife Australia uh, BirdLife International um, if you're familiar with them they, uh, they've they been doing a citizen science program getting people to uh, go out and actually listen for the owls calling to identify owls in, in the urban environment and you know, associated with woodland patches in, interspersed in suburbia. And uh, and so it's been really successful. So this year they recorded uh, 53 chicks being um, born, and that's just in the Sydney region. Wow. So, you know, Sydney's at the biggest city in Australia. There's like 4 million people here. But we've got this vulnerable woodland uh, apex predator, nocturnal predator, uh, that's sharing our city with us. A lot of people wouldn't even know. And you don't even... If I'm not mistaken, I looked online, and I was actually
0: surprised. I looked at the acreage that you have, or the hectareage you have <laughs> in Sydney. And it's not actually that much of parkland. Mm-hmm. So it's not that these birds are like... like I, I For instance, I, my park that I personally my offices is, is 1,900 acres. Okay. And we have lots of great horns in there. Yep. But it's a massive park. Mm-hmm. Um, these owls are nesting not in big, huge parks, right? They're nesting in like yards and right you don't have that you don't have that much big parkland from them mm-hmm. nesting
1: right yeah so surrounding sydney there are oh big national parks right. so they're you know square kilometers of, of just you know areas that haven't been changed but this the urban footprint is a huge sprawl of suburbia yeah. and mm-hmm. uh and so you know there's vegetation associated with like uh gullies and and little creek lines and things like that and that's where the owls are and that's because that's where the big trees have been retained uh, they do occur in some urban parks. So we're sitting here on Sydney Harbour, in the middle of the CBD, in the Botanic Garden. This is a uh, 60 hectare. So uh, yeah, we're a
0: five-minute walk from the Opera House. Yeah,
1: so 360 acres ish, uh, um, and there's a pair of owls here. Sometimes we see up to four owls here because birds disperse through. Um, the but the owls are here because there's food. So because of all the vegetation being in a Botanic Garden. There's lots of possums, there's lots of so, ring-tailed possums and brush-tailed possums. There's flying foxes in the area, because there's food, so they come in at night, so the owls can eat them. And of course, there's other birds, which they eat as well, so things like the sulfur crested cockatoos, but other things around. What we see, because you can see them, this is one of the few species that actually sits on its prey. So during the day, you can go look at it and see that it's sitting on a possum, or yeah. sitting on a flying fox. All the pictures you see of them, has a possum in its talons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's... um. It's interesting, and you see that yeah, possums and flying foxes are what we see them eating here a lot. But the other thing, which is part of their urban adaptation, they eat black rats. Mm. So you know the the rats that have been introduced to the country, which thrive in cities, they will actually grab them out of uh, canopies. And so they they do forage naturally, even though they're here in a in an urban setting. They'll forage in the cafe here, <laughs> or the bins. You know what I mean. Uh, but they're also in the surrounding vegetation, and the owls grab them out of there. Wow! And uh, they they can get b- pretty big. <laughs> how, how about um um
0: speaking of like scavenging as I mean well prey in an urban environment got me thinking about wet tailed eagles because mm. um. You know, I saw quite. A, I saw a few of them on my trip, and they're eating, all eating roadkill. Yep. Um, have they come into cities at all, eating roadkill, or are they
1: are they still need big open areas? Yeah, we don't see them in the Sydney area uh, often. There is a species called a white-bellied seagull. It's only yeah. just smaller than the wedge-tailed eagle. Uh, you do see them, so you see them flying over here sometimes. The same uh, genus for our to The same genus as bald eagle. Yep. Uh, and um, so. You know, they breed down the the Sydney Harbour, down the other end, it's called the Parramatta River, and there's a a nest there where they're breeding. Uh, Out in Western Sydney I see more whistling kites Mm. and and things like that, so uh, little eagles, but not the wedgies. Um, But yeah, I guess the thing is there's probably not that much roadkill, there's probably more roadkill when you get further out of the city, yeah. because in the city we've already killed everything. Yeah. Anyway, there's actually a lot of wildlife in the city, <laughs> Yeah, but, but you know what I mean. Not uh, the
0: big, like, macropods that are going to be
1: eating on the highway. No. So,
0: that's... Then the Yellowtail Blacks, what's, mm-hmm. their, what's their story?
1: Yeah, look. so they're an interesting one. They're actually not so much an urban adapter, but they do come into the area. Uh, they're a larger cockatoo, like the sulfur crested cockatoo. They've got this amazingly powerful beak. They get pine cones and just rip them open and, and eat the seeds. Uh, the other parrots, like soft-crested cockatoos or corellas and galahs, will then eat some of the remnants ah. that they've dropped because they don't have the equipment right. to actually crunch into those unopened pine cones. Um, the the other thing that this uh, the yellow-tailed black cockatoos do is they'll literally rip branches open to eat the grubs that they can hear inside the branches. Oh wow! So yeah, they're actually you know it's something you don't think a lot about, but parrots eating protein and uh, so they come into uh, the Sydney region seasonally for the the pine cones that have been planted on things like Pinus radiata so introduced species that have been planted in urban areas there are species that the the data suggests is declining and again it's always habitat loss Mm -hmm. you know we clear a lot of land for agriculture and for urban areas and so there's less uh, forest that has food for them they're also a hollow nesting species. Mm. And so, you know, I've got this citizen science program called Hollows as Homes, trying to get the community to report tree hollows in their backyard, in their street, because the loss of hollows is actually a, a threatening process nationally for heaps of species. But yeah, so the yellowtails, they're quite cool. We, um, we see them come in each sort of winter for this food resource. And so this year we've we actually caught uh, 10 birds and fitted them with GPS transmitters to see where they're going. And so currently they've moved a couple of hundred kilometres away south but still using a lot of urban areas uh, so it's quite surprising we'll do a habitat analysis of the patches they're using a couple of them have gone really bush and they're probably breeding birds they've gone to spots where there's uh, because of their localized movements at the moment it's the breeding season but the other birds that seem to be dispersing are likely younger birds that are just out foraging but some birds still sitting around in eastern sydney here in in some of the highest density living areas still foraging on on native banksia and so the coastal heathland was as uh, a vegetation community called eastern sub um what was it uh, yeah eastern suburbs banksia scrub and so the banksias uh, you know they flower they they produce these um cones with lots of seeds and they uh those cones sit on the trees for even years waiting for a fire so the birds it's like a buffet that they'll just come back to, to eat those seeds
0: but I got, like, really distracted because there's automatic doors in this cafe and and common miners are flying in when the doors open to feed off of tables and flying back out and...
1: Scavenging. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the introduced uh, common miner, otherwise known as an Indian miner locally here. So it did get introduced from the subcontinent. But, uh, yeah, there is a species, also a hollow nester, incidentally, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, there are species that... Um, it's funny, we've got a native species called a Noisy Miner, and there's a big confusion. Because, but M-I-N-E-R. Yeah.
0: But is that like a bastardization of Miner? They look like Miners, even though they're honey eaters.
1: Yeah, it is a bastardization. Right. But it's, um, and so it is that confusion in the in the community, yeah. where they never really see the name written, they just talk about it. And so, Miner, Miner. but yeah. uh, yeah, so a lot of people must, uh, don't like the native one, because they're also a, an abundant, aggressive species, and... But they, and then you talk to them and go, well, which one don't you like? They say, oh, the grey one. You we go, well, that's the native. Yeah. Like, no, no. So it's really interesting the, you know, how much people really engage with the species they do or they like or dislike. You know, they, sometimes they don't know their names. Yeah.
0: Did you um, your,
1: your PhD was that on urban wildlife or is that? It's on our beautiful Australian white ibis. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So I was. Um... So this
0: is your thing. Like you are, you are an urban, You're meant for this job. You're an urban wildlife guy. <laughs>
1: yeah I do I do some um, I do some remote stuff as well but yeah I, I, you
0: gotta get that you gotta get uh, you gotta get a
1: bush now and then yeah exactly yeah so no I definitely um, urban wildlife is really interesting that you know that that issue of of human wildlife conflict but also the behavioural adaptation you yeah know, all these species it's not normal for them to have no fear factor for, of humans we're you know an apex predator and once upon a time yeah we would have had very different interactions with all these species we're talking about if you could catch them. Uh, if they were close enough, you know. They're all just food.
0: Well, right now is the time of year people do Christmas bird counts. Yes, right, CBC. And, and, uh, and that's from an American tradition where we'd go out and shoot everything we saw in
1: one day. And they're like, <laughs> why don't you
0: count them instead? So, yeah, until very recently, all these birds would have been food.
1: Yeah, well. The the thing that was just amazing then, as you were saying, that was those miners both triggered the, the motion door activator and then flew out. That was <laughs> on the sliding door. So you know that that is smart. Yeah, yeah. But you look, that's a fantastic evolution of the uh, the CBC from shooting to counting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, it's, it's, I'm I'm sad to miss it while I'm here. Um, I go, I, you know, I've been going, I've missed some here or there, but I, um, but I've been doing it, you know. Over oh, for like 25 years or more with my dad, and uh, I have to miss it. But uh, oh my it was funny, I got like a whole pile of my friends that go do it with him without me, <laughs>
1: okay? They'll fill in for you, yeah. So, you know, so one of the things that uh, is also really interesting for me is, for instance, you know, your podcast. So it's talking to people or communicating to people about uh, things that are in their world, in their surroundings, and so one of the big things with all these uh, species that seem to be, uh, you know, overabundant or behaving badly, you know, nuisance species, is really that opportunity to to actually engage with the community and talk with them about these species. Uh, You know, a lot of people, when you tell them that the Australian white ibis is a native species, because they don't call them the Australian white ibis, they call them a a bin chicken, or a tip turkey, or that white bird, and, you know, you go through the description and then you say, oh, that's an ibis, and they go, oh, yeah, I don't like them, and then you go, do you know they're native? And a lot of people say no, and that's because they used to be called the sacred ibis. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, they used to be perceived as an introduced species, and so you know that changes people's perception straight away. Oh, it's a native species, and then you say, oh well, do you know why it's here? You know, the habitat loss, and that's of species. You know, then you talk about things like the powerful owl, and people just get blown away. There's this big owl that eats possums, flying around in the in the city where they are just walking around. You know, they're They're just cool birds, you know, these cool species.
2: All right, next up, Tony goes on a herping trip. This is the part where I got really jealous, not that, like, going to Australia for almost a month wasn't enough to make me jealous, but in this case, Tony goes out herping, um, and so we're going to hear him sort of talking on the intro to the herping trip, and then afterwards, sort of a summary recap of the herping trip.
0: All righty. I'm here with my dude Rob Hinson, um, and we are in Sydney, driving to another part of Sydney, right? We're not actually leaving Sydney, or is that, we're not quite sure?
4: Uh, we're staying in Sydney. Yes. and no sign saying goodbye, thank you for coming.
0: Yeah, the, the definitions of what's a, in Australia, a su- the word suburb means subdivision of a city, so you could be right in the downtown of Sydney and live in a suburb, so um, it's a little confusing as to what's the city and what's not, um, because if you say you live in a suburb, you could literally live in like right by the big buildings and not actually live in um, an area that looks like traditional suburbs to me. Um, So we're going to a park that's within the city limits of Sydney um, to do some herping by Spotlight and uh, maybe we'll see some other things like sugar gliders possums anything else you might see Rob? Uh, Geckos frogs
4: hopefully giant barring frogs um, echidnas
0: this will be awesome so this is the last hurrah of a month's stay in Australia for me um, most of it wasn't particularly urban um, we were in very we were in far north Queensland and we went to look for some birds that are, it was mostly a birding trip uh, but we did spotlight we were looking for everything we could see um, but we were yeah we went to Continue along this we went to national parks in the far north of Queensland and uh, trying to get the specialty birds there birds that either you can only find them in Australia there or they only live there Uh, Some of the birds are shared with New Guinea. We also spent some time in... I spent some time on the way up in in this place called the Cassowary House in Corunda um, where I did see, indeed, see cassowaries and some a lot of other things and a a tree kangaroo, but that was um, in a a national park um, outside the town. But, and on the way back, we went to Mount Lewis, um, which is in... Is actually in Athens and Tablelands? Lewis, or, yeah, yeah uh, which is another area of, which is full of endemic birds um, to a, a like totally 100% endemic Australian birds shared with nowhere else. And they're really cool like golden bower bird, tooth cat catbird, uh, acid and table, uh, acid and uh, scrub wren, um, fern wren, um, chilla, a bunch of other great stuff. Um, we also saw what the white tailed rat. Giant white tailed rat. Yeah, giant white tailed rat, which is cool to see a hey, um, non masturbule in Australia. It's pretty cool. Uh, Flawed footed m- m- Melanus, melanus. Melimus. Melimus, which is a, basically an arboreal rat, um, it was really cool to see. We also saw red footed Patamelons, which is a, a small rainforest c- a kangaroo. Uh, I also saw, well, I saw musky rat kangaroos um, in that same general vicinity. Um, Before, But let's talk about um, our, the jumping off point for anything Expedition North, the city of Cairns. So, Cairns is a small city that, I guess, focuses on Great Barrier Reef tourism. And the wildlife that you can see in this city is spectacular. Uh, Rob. would you, as our local Australian, would you like to talk about some of the stuff we saw in Cairns?
4: Yeah, well Cairns is very different to most of the bigger cities like Sydney and Melbourne. You've got, you're have got you right on the sea, uh, and there's terrific mudflats. It's one of the best places in Australia to see shorebirds, uh, or waders as some people call them here. Um, there's also a lot of reasonably net, intact native habitat in and around the city to the mangroves, hold mangrove robins and um, various other honey eaters and butcher birds. Um, The the esplanade, which you walk along to see the shorebirds has um, peaceful doves just at your feet, um, which is pretty amazing, because normally they're a little bit shy. Um, There's fig parrots feeding in the trees around you, varied honey eaters, um, a whole host of birds uh, a lot of species um, that you would typically, if you're in a bigger city, you would have to go out of the city, maybe half an hour to an hour out of the city to see that sort of variety of species. Um, but Cairns is pretty unique in the sense that right in the city or within five minutes of the centre of that city, um, you've got all of those birds right, in, right on your doorstep.
0: Yeah, I'd say i probably got 20 species of bird that I didn't get elsewhere on the trip, right in Cairns. Yeah, it's about right.
4: And they're all pretty easy, because I, th- I think they're um, just accustomed to humans as well. So you've got bush stone curlews um, running around at night on the lawns and on the streets and on the roads of the city itself. Uh, and to see a bird like that from Sydney, you might have to go for two or three hours, and they would be very difficult to see. Also the
0: two or three species of flying fox?
4: Yeah, they were spectacled, little red, and I think Jaden had some blacks as well, all in the city. Uh, Sydney's quite famous for the grey-headed flying foxes, Um, and we occasionally get blacks, um, but we're at the southern end of their their range. And I think Brisbane gets flying foxes as well too, right? Brisbane gets uh, certainly black... I'm not sure if it gets grey-headed. It might get little reds.
0: So it's pretty amazing when you just walk around the city and you see this massive bat flying over. It looks like the batman symbols in the sky above you. And sometimes they can fly really really high up, too. They can be
4: really high up. They can be feeding the trees right above you. Uh, and they're communal roosters, so when they come out for the night at dusk, you, there might be several thousand just erupting from their roosting trees just as it's getting
0: dark, which is quite a sight. Now, we didn't see this bird, um, but if I'm not mistaken, one of the birds we're looking for, powerful owl, is a specialist on flying foxes, right? And you can find them in cities sometimes um, feeding on flying fox colonies. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, so
4: there's powerful owls in the Royal Botanical Gardens in Sydney, um, and they um, often will feed on possums, but they're... Uh, they're adaptable, and certainly in the Royal Botanical Gardens, where there used to be a, a large colony of grey-headed flying foxes, it was very common to find one with a, a dead flying fox in its talons uh, in the morning from its night's hunting.
0: in tropical coastal Australia, is the, par- and the rufous owl takes over that role, right?
4: That's right, and they're seen in um, many urban areas, such as uh, along the Esplanade in Cairns in Darwin up at the uh, the botanical gardens they're often seen
0: uh, we met this amazing cool nature photography couple uh, Jazz and Matt who were up in Queensland and they just uh, had a photograph of a uh, Rufous in Townsville mm. so that's another city that I hear is really good for her wildlife that I, I gotta check out but I have mm. a friend there so when I come back I'll have to check that out although this country is so massive it's hard to go everywhere <laughs> you've done pretty well so far yeah yeah it is. it's pretty crazy um so yeah and there's also the, we have uh, we already recorded an interview with a gentleman studying the Taurasian Imperial Pigeons and nest in the, in cans. that's pretty unique and amazing um that was literally the first bird I think I, got, I saw when I got off the plane I saw this black and white pigeon fly by and I was like whoa is that an Imperial Pigeon this is crazy um so yeah, Kansas was, was incredible. Um, and they have crocs right off the, in, in the harbor too. We didn't see them, but apparently they're there. There's warning signs for them all over. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Sydney and uh, the urban wildlife that you see in Sydney? So Sydney's, um, it's not quite as exciting as Cairns in the sense that you have
4: many, many species right in the middle of the city or within just minutes of the center of the city. Um but there are a a few pretty special species um, not necessarily just birds um, probably the the most interesting bird in the city are the powerful owls Um, and there's powerful owls in the Royal Botanical Gardens which is literally minutes from the Sydney Harbour Bridge and um, just a few metres from the Opera House Uh, most people who go to the Botanical Gardens go there via the Opera House
0: as did I as did Tony for the interview that you also hear in this episode.
4: So, powerful owl is probably the the most iconic Australian species that we have in the city. Um, one thing that that surprises a lot of foreign birders is we have ibises right in the city uh, on the streets. They usually feed on the leftovers from the public chips and stuff. They've um, not involved, but they have utilized their very long bill to feed from rubbish bins. Um, typically ibis, if you go to America or Europe, you get them in marshes and, and wetlands. Uh, it's quite a surprise to see them right in the middle of the city. Uh, I think there's some in Africa that do something similar. Uh, and parrots, there's quite a few parrots that we get in the city. Cockatoos, Again, you see them all over the city. You get them in Hyde Park, in the botanical gardens. Uh, occasionally, little Corellas are right in the city. And rainbow lorikeets, one of the most beautiful parrots we have, um, are found all over the city. As long as there's flowering trees for them to feed on, um, they don't care that there's skyscrapers and, and, and shopping malls all over the place. They've got some
0: food, so they're happy. And they're absolutely one of the most common birds you encounter in. If not, Pro- yeah, the I and mean,
4: there's quite large roosts of them, um, actually near quite a few shopping centres and train stations, and um, they're very noisy at night, um, they'll chatter on all through the night and make an awful racket, um, but yeah, you can see thousands of them at, at some of these roosts. Um, so that's really it for birds. There's a few other bird species that you get in the city. You get Australian ravens and magpies um, currawongs, magpie larks Um, In some of the urban parks such as Sydney Park in Newtown we have uh, species like Latham snipe which breeds in Japan and spends its winter down in Sydney uh, or throughout Australia really Uh, we often get up to five each summer at Sydney Park. Um, other birds you get at Sydney Park, you'll. We've had um, stilts breeding there successfully. Black-fronted dotterels of bred, and get galahs occasionally. A, a red run parrot. Um, the other day with Tony, we had a, a buff-banded rail. That's also another species that you get in the Botanical Gardens, right next to the Opera House. is buff-banded rails. Rails tend to be pretty difficult to see, um, but you can come to Sydney and a few other cities in Australia and you can see them in the parks which is pretty neat. Um, But the thing we're doing tonight, uh, we're going to the worst kept secret in Sydney herpetological uh, circles. It's a secret spot just in the northern parts of the city um, to look for reptiles. Um, So Australia has a huge diversity in in reptiles and we're we're looking for snakes and geckos tonight and also legless lizards and one of our biggest targets and this uh, secret site is famous for is death adders Um, if you have a reasonably warm night over 23 degrees centigrade you've got a pretty good chance of seeing a death adder Um, other species we're hoping to see are bandy bandies black and white stripes and they do this funny defensive posturing where they raise part of their body up Um, it's quite entertaining, it's not particularly threatening to humans Um, have a funny diet of um, blind snakes they are thought to exclusively feed on blind snakes Um, other species that we're looking for, diamond pythons which are fairly regular uh, in and around Sydney golden crown snakes which um, a few of my friends who live in the city have um, seen them in their gardens or on their driveways and one of, one of my friends has, actually had, has only seen one and that was in his house which is rather amusing for his wife um, there's occasionally tiger snakes in this park um, but they tend to be diurnal so we don't see them at night very often um, there's marsh snakes Occasionally red-bellied black snakes at night. Uh, and there's about three species of geckos that we'll get. Um, and there's also quite a few frog species. One of the ones we're really looking for is a, a huge frog um, called a giant burrowing frog, which we tend to get after rains, but uh, we haven't had much rain recently, but there have been some sighted. Um, so hopefully we can get a, one of these giant burrowing frogs for you, Tiny.
0: That would be awesome. And hopefully when we do this on the way back talk about all we've seen I'll do a little wrap up um, cool well that's good for now and then we'll, we'll talk more when we, get, when we get there oh yeah alright so say we haven't um I'm here with my friend Jaden Walsh Right? it's correct pronunciation and remind me of your name again
2: Liam Goering
0: and Rob is Rob's still with us so uh Jayden was with us on our Cape York expedition and he met me in Cairns and we had a good time burning around Cairns so why don't you give us a rundown of what we saw here on our um fringes of Sydney herping run well we didn't just just herp but we saw other things too so why don't you, get, why don't you tell us what we saw
5: yeah well it started off with a pretty hot day so conditions were looking good for the night um we started off seeing a bandy-bandy, uh, which is an, a lapard, but it's not considered extremely um, dangerous to humans because they feed mainly upon blackish blind snakes in the Sydney region, um, so they don't need very strong venom. Um, after that, we moved on to seeing uh, and hearing, actually, first a couple of white-throated night gels. Um We kept going, and then Rob spotted a brown antichinous uh, just scuttering around in the mm. leaf litter.
0: And just so folks know, that's a, a small insectivorous um, marsupial.
5: Yeah, that's right. So they look a little bit like a mouse, but they've got a pointier snout and much sharper teeth, and they can be quite ferocious at times. Um, and so we, you know.
0: And we saw what, two more of them throughout the night, right? Mm,
5: yeah. And um, then we got down to a nice little stream, and there we saw some leaf green stream frogs. Um, which are in the tree frog family, and they're quite cute little frogs, about you know three or four centimeters long, most of them. Um, we got onto about four or five of them, and then on the way back, um, we found a New Holland mouse, which is the second record in 13 years, and the first record was about two days before, so that was awesome, and we got great views of that um, feeding upon a. Banksia integrifolia cone um, and getting seeds from the seed pod and then yeah I think that kind of pretty much finished up our night until we got to the gate and we saw a broad-tailed gecko which is looks really similar to the leaf-tailed geckos um, and used to be in that same family and there, one of Sydney's four gecko species um, that you get up here and yeah that finished off a great night herping
0: Indeed. It was a good time. I had a great time in Australia. This is, this is my last hurrah for natural history activities. Well, I head back to bed, I wake up, have breakfast with Rob's lovely family, and then uh, head to the airport. Where I may or may not, n- not get on a plane <laughs> for, and, and uh, get on a different plane because they're talking about some switcheroo giving me free flight deal. So I'll take it if that happens.
4: Good old Delta.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'll go on a racist tirade though, get kicked off forever, or an anti-racist tirade, and they'll give me free flights forever. Mm. should do that, be awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, Jaden, it was an absolute pleasure. I hope to see you again. And not that it wasn't a pleasure, but I just met you briefly. You too. But I would am I seeing you again too? But Jaden, uh, <laughs> no. you're gonna be my natural history brother forever. Yeah. So hopefully we run into each other on this continent and other ones. Yeah, it's been great. Cheers.
2: Alright, folks thanks for listening to another episode this special episode of the urban wildlife podcast with tony's adventures in australia if you like the podcast please rate us on your podcasting platform of choice please also let your friends know about it you can use snapchat facebook twitter you can talk to people face to face you can call people on the telephone you can text your friends you can hold up a sign telling the whole world that they should listen to the urban wildlife podcast if you want to get in touch with us please do Please let us know how you like the show. Please let us know any ideas you've got for other episodes or other topics. Please invite us to come to your city and go herping or go birding or do anything. In any case, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at herbwildlifecast. You can pretty easily find us on Facebook and let us know what you think. And so we hope you like this episode. And please stay tuned for another episode coming up soon of the Urban Wildlife Podcast.